Hi there, my name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lindenberg, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience. And we have a special podcast today, as we haven't done a case study in a while, but this one's a bit of a tangent in that we're going to take a look at one of the latest leak stories called the FinCEN Leaks. Marie, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. How are you doing this morning? Thank you, Sam. I'm doing quite well. It is a very gloomy and rainy day up here in Sweden today. How are things for you in London at the moment? Well, it's day five of the rain, and I was thinking I might start Googling how to build an ark. It's been a lot of water, I must say. Just make sure you don't get any leaks. (laughs) Now, speaking of leaks, and it's so apt, actually, for today, the FinCEN leaks, another tale of information that has gone out into the public domain, pointing out a number of issues in relation to financial crime. So for those of you who have not had the chance to read some of the in-depth material, here's a high-level summary of the topic we're going to chat about. So basically, the FinCEN leaks are a leak of between 2,100 and 2,500 suspicious activity reports, depending on the source you look at. But the leak came from the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crime Enforcement Network, known as FinCEN. They were first published in late September by both BuzzFeed News and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, known as the ICIJ. And they reported that along with a community of over 90 journalists, analyzed a trove of suspicious activity reports, which were the subject of the leak. And they reported that in total, these suspicious activity reports involved more than $2 trillion of payments between 2000 and 2017. Now, the investigation itself was very thorough. It took place over a 16-month period in which they not only collated data, fact-checked, um, but also prepared themselves for the release in a coordinated fashion, which took place about three weeks ago, I guess now. Now, they shared the data with more than 100 media outlets in 88 countries, and they said that there will be additional stories coming out over the days. And not only that, but the ICIJ in its usual tradition has published a database allowing users to search a selection of the data involving more than 18,000 transactions that total approximately 35 billion. So you can actually download this database and run it against your client lists if you choose. Now, interestingly, many of the records were compiled in response to a U.S. congressional request, and that was following investigations into the Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. So since this time, a number of articles are being published bit by bit over time, and the most recent one has been published on the ICIJ website, and that's in relation to the global gold trade. Now, we should also note that we don't encourage anyone to engage in the leaking of information, uh, and the consequences can be extremely serious. So we know at the start of the year, for example, in January, that Ms. Edwards, who was involved in the leaking of this information, worked at the Treasury, uh, has pleaded guilty for conspiring to unlawfully disclose documents to BuzzFeed News. But that's enough for me, because I have the pleasure today of interviewing Marie, who is a incredibly experienced auditor in the field of financial crime prevention. And I thought it would be great for you to hear her take on this from her professional perspective. So Marie, just a little bit context. Can you remember what you saw people at financial institutions do the last time we had a big leak, which was the Panama Papers in April 2016? Ah, yes, the Panama Papers. Well, to some extent, this was the first real scandal here in the Nordics when that happened. 
we have had a few decisions from the FSA and administrative fines prior to this, but this really caught the eyes of the people, the public, so to speak. It might be a cultural thing that you know, tax crime, such as avoiding to pay your taxes in our society, is one of the worst crimes you can commit, well, at least in the eye of the public. But in that leak, several companies were named as either helping others with creating companies based in some lovely tropical warm island or interacting with Mossack Fonseca or simply transact with these companies or banks. So what did financial institutions do? Well, that led into the quest of information and at some financial institutions, a deep dive into their client base to wield out if your bank or institution was part of it or not. And yes, amongst these um, leaked names or companies were some really high profile names and companies. You know, some of the regulators and enforcement agencies, I remember at the time, they also sent around requests asking financial institutions to confirm that they'd actually check the names of the people, including in the Panama Papers data, because at that time, the ICIJ actually made the data available in a downloadable format. Did you hear some of the same thing happening up in Sweden and elsewhere in the Nordics? Well, to some extent, yes. It was more along the line to make sure that the financial institutions had the proper policies and procedures in place. However, the regulators did start investigations of the major banks up here in the Nordics. Some will say that it was too little too late and perhaps not extensive enough. Well, hindsight is always 2020, right? But this isn't the first time we've had leaks, as I mentioned earlier. And ironically, we're recording this podcast on a rainy day in both of our regions. So we've had Lux leaks, Swiss leaks. Maybe there's leaks, paradise leaks, well, you name them, (laughs) Mauritius, you know, we can go on and on. We can name jurisdictions worldwide where there has been a lot of leaks. Yes. Yeah. And they always seem to be, you know, disclosing more financial crime risks, both in the past tense and the present, you know. And I I sort of gave an overview at the beginning about the context of these FinCEN leaks. And what do you think makes this leak different from the others? Well, first of all, here you have a lot of information in one place, right? So there's a lot of jurisdictions reporting into one and the same data hub, FinCEN, right? So that's the equivalent of the FIU for for the United States of America. And all these combined SARS or STRs, a SAR is a suspicious activity report and a STR is a suspicious transaction report. They make a gold mine of information and subsequently data. Data that could paint a clear picture of how transactions flow worldwide, who the major players are, and how these flows can be part of money laundering schemes. Or not. So, Marie, I mentioned the database, but what information is actually contained in that database that you can download? That's a good question, Sam. And yes, to be clear, this database is not as extensive as the other databases, that you can search on the ICIJ's website, for instance. It contains information about these major players I mentioned, the banks and the jurisdictions they operate in, as well as the origin as in country where the transaction was generated from. No individual names, no names on the person behind the submitted SAR or SGR, thank God for that, because we need our privacy in in order to operate in this field. And of course, no addresses, etc. It does contain information on how many transactions that has been processed and, if applicable, the value of it. 
so given that this database is available, you know, is this the point to run around and start to panic if you're a financial institution? Like, should you start madly screening, downloading that database against all the transactions you've done with the banks that are named? Well, the database could serve as a good starting point when you do your risk assessment and to get a better understanding of how it all fits in the transaction chain. Please be aware of that a few of the banks in the database are no longer in business or has been merged with other banks. I would also recommend to make sure that the KYC of potential high-risk non-residential customers operating in high-risk jurisdiction, if they are a part of your client base, of course, is up to date and that the transactions that is being processed has a clear purpose. And while I'm at it, I'm going to throw in another piece of advice here. The KYC for local business customers with non-residential UBOs especially if the UBO is located in a high-risk jurisdiction. Ask yourself, is that copy of the client's passport still valid? Is the customer risk profile up to date? And is it a part of the scenarios in your monitoring tool? And the big question here is, is your screening tool for adverse media up to par? Interesting. And that ties in really nicely to the articles, because it's not just the ICIJ who are producing articles, but many journalists around the world uh, talking about their local connections to these leaks. And it's in those articles where there's a whole variety of additional parties who are actually named, and they're not in that database. So there's, you know, there's the clients, there's uh, gatekeepers, as we call them. You know, what, what do you think firms should be doing with that? I mean, what do you, have you seen anything of interest coming out of those articles in terms of the types of parties that are named? It comes back to what we said in the earlier podcasts about Swedbank, for instance. It takes a village of people. So it's about finding those gatekeepers, those enablers, which could be done, for instance, if you use a network analytics tool, it's about to get that jigsaw puzzle put together. So Sam, I need to ask you a question. One of these um, missing pieces in that puzzle can now, or soon at least, be found amongst the information from Company House Register in the UK, because they are taking it one step further, aren't they? They are. They really took to heart the responses to the consultation last year in terms of saying Companies House is a great tool, provided somebody's checking the information that goes on it about not only beneficial owners, but also providing enough information about the people involved in the formation of companies. Aligned to that as well, uh, Lee Robbins, who is the head of enforcement in Companies House, during a call last week was talking about the discrepancy notifications and saying there needs to be some support for them as well and that they want people not just to say only new companies from 2020. they saying if you see something that's different about beneficial ownership information, different from what we have, please, even if it's an older company, give us a notification and let us know. So it's going to be going forward belts and braces. They'll be doing more verification about the information put on Companies House about beneficial owners, and then they'll brace it with saying, please notify us if you see anything that's different from what we hold. So that's hopefully going to mitigate some of the risks um, that I think have been published around Companies House. Let's see what the rest of the European jurisdictions do, right? Indeed. We as a community of financial crime fighters are depending on the accuracy of the data in different versions of company registers. It brings to mind when we talk to Chris Taggart from Open Corporates and how the information and transparency varies from country to country. 
I do know that one of the examples he talked about in that episode was Denmark versus Spain. Transparent and not so much transparent. The issue is that wherever there is an opaque situation or issue, the other side is using that to get ahead. We are fighting this battle on so many arenas. The resources must be pulled together to stop potential elections being thrown, shady investments being made, using bribery or corruption to exploit new business opportunities. And that's just a few examples. Absolutely. And, you know, I have to go back to adverse media because, you know, it's my bugbear. You know, we chatted with Basis. I did a podcast with Comply Advantage. There's lots of people out there with really interesting adverse media screening tools. Could you use this as kind of a litmus test to see how good your adverse media screening is? Because, yeah, there's some nefarious characters where there's been quite extensive press coverage. But then there's people I've never heard of before who are being disclosed and identified in some of these articles. For sure. That is what I call reverse testing. For instance, you have a name or a company name on either a sanction list, a pep list, or someone featured in the media with a negative ring to it. So check if that individual or company is part of your client base, part of the transaction flow. Check incoming and outgoing payment swift messages, or is this one of the gatekeepers or enablers? So question here is, has that person or company set off any type of alert or warning in your different monitoring systems? If so, the question here is, how has that been handled? So what would you do if you were an internal auditor for one of the financial institutions out there, particularly up in the Nordics? What would you like to see a firm do with this information? Well, I would update my training material. I would tie it back to risk management, reputational risk. Sam, you and I have been giving senior management and board of directors trainings during the years. And I bet you have used the what if scenario, right? What if there is a massive leak of information from the bank? What if you are swarmed with reporters hovering around the entrance when you try to leave and shove a microphone in your face saying, well, what happened in your bank? Are you laundering money? Can you tell us about this client? Why is that a client of yours? Those what if scenarios are now being a reality for quite a few CEOs and sharepersons. We see the stock market values falling, years of rise in the price being erased, And yes, some accountability and criminal cases being formed too. So let's try and end things off on a positive note. I know it's a rainy day in both of our jurisdictions, but there there has to be a little glimmer of potential sunshine here. I know people have talked about this is going to lead to making people shy about SARS. It might make people feel a lack of confidence about the security of their own information. But what's something positive? we can encourage people to take from this, Marie? Well, first of all, how to file a really good SAR, right? How to really (laughs) file that with solid information and why it's so important that we actually keep doing our jobs and filing. And if you are on MLRO, make sure your employer has taken the necessary precautions to protect your privacy. This can be done by using an alias when filing. It might not be applicable in every jurisdiction as it is here in Sweden. It is, however, a good protective measurement. Interesting. And on that fascinating note, thank you, Marie, for being my interviewee this morning. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, thank you, Sam, for inviting me to do it. It's always a pleasure, never a chore, huh? So this was a special episode of Captivated Audience. We would love to do more of these. So if you have any questions or topics you would like us to discuss, please reach out to us on captivatedaudience.eu or simply look us up on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay safe.